it's Tuesday the 29th of August. Summer's over. You've had all the bank holidays you're going to be getting and it's time to start your week from the bunker. I'm Andrew Harrison and joining me to dismantle the stories of the week ahead, it's Hannah Fern from the iPaper and elsewhere. Good morning, Hannah. Good morning. Are you rejuvenated for a climactic autumn of politics or just desperate to get the kids back to school? <laughs> Bit of both, definitely. The latter. I'm ready to get back to work now, frankly. I've had enough of the weather, to be honest. It's not been the best summer. <laughs> Quite right. Well, let's start off with the dirty bomb that's likely to dominate Tory politics for the next few days. Nadine Dorry's acrimonious resignation letter and the lead up to the mid-Benfordshire by-election. It looks like the vote's going to take place in early October and Labour and the Liberal Democrats are already jockeying over who can take the seat. What was your favourite part of the letter before we get into the meat of it? I think mine was, thank you for your call, Prime Minister, on the morning of the election, although I declined to take it. <laughs> it was brilliant. Oh, it's so splenetic. I enjoyed it. But for me, the funniest bit was where she started popping out all these issues that she's shown absolutely no care or regard for whatsoever in the last yes. uh, decade and a half. Social care was in there mental health. And then there was a whole bunch of interviews she did following the publication of that letter, which included issues like leaseholder reform, which as people who follow this podcast and know that I am the unofficial housing desk will know that I care about deeply. I've literally never heard her care less about this. It's amazing that she's just throwing out all these genuinely important issues that she suddenly realised she might have wanted to do something about during her tenure as an MP. <laughs> I also thought she hit an app. She really read the room when she said, you've left so many of my colleagues in the Conservative to buzzy fearful for their livelihoods. That's what people are really worried about. So, to <laughs> yeah, exactly. job. so it took Dory 79 days to resign with immediate effect. The class war tone of this letter, particularly her banging on about Sunak's Prada shoes and Savile Row suit. How do you think that's going to affect the trajectory of the Conservative Party entering a challenging autumn? Well, it definitely can't help them. In that sense, I do think that she's very much of the sort of it's better to be out for a decade camp within the Tories. Um, she's vengeful enough to want Sunak to be absolutely pasted at the general election because all that's all this letter does. If she thinks this is going to kind of bring up the kind of true blue Tory underground and to, to fight for a different kind of a party, I think she's very wrong. So it looks like the by-election will happen probably during the Conservative conference, which is uh, 1st to the 4th of October, it's the Thursday of that week. Now, she did talk a lot about how uh, the reason for the delay is that the, the House had risen, therefore the writ for the by-election couldn't be moved until, until it returns. It's quite a coincidence, isn't it, if you really want to ruin things for, uh, for Rishi Sunak? Clever coincidence. Well, it could either ruin or make them. I think this is a really interesting one because it's such a good barometer for what's going to happen next. Obviously, her seat has a majority of 24,000 and it's been held by the Tories for a century. So there are reasons to think they could cling on, even with a, a very, very reduced majority. So that could make the Tory conference for Sunak, of course. The seat that everyone was watching and hoping would, would go stays with them. So it's a barometer. So let's wait and see what happens. I think the, the reason that we've seen these kind of Labour ads, including the Ken video, did you see that this weekend? Uh, oh, yes. Well, voters <laughs> like Ken. <laughs> so what we're seeing is Starmer going round to somebody's house, apparently just a knock on the door, obviously the most staged thing you've ever seen in your life, where this bloke who was a big Boris fan, Ken, decides after a chat with Keir on the sofa that actually he's the man for the job. It's very, very cringeworthy. It's definitely worth watching. But these kind of things are out and about because everybody knows that this is it, it's a watershed battle. It's the, the moment that we see, is it a close fight or, or are we actually going to see a complete 
complete landslide next year. So the last poll at the start of July, a while ago, before all of Dorry's antics, had Labour on 28%, Tories on 24%, and Liberal Democrats on 15%. The Liberal Democrats are campaigning to win it in a way that's just infuriating for, for anybody who holds mm. out this, this, this ghost of some sort of informal progressive alliance. Could the two opposition parties end up gifting it to the Conservatives by their refusal to work together? Definitely. They have ruled out any kind of pact. And as you say, they're both really fighting for victory. And that's with a majority of 24,000, that is a risky strategy. And that's why it could end up becoming one of these seats that, you know, they they hold on to by a whisker, but become part of a resurrection strategy. So there's reasons not to take a Tory loss for granted here, despite everything that Doris has put her constituents through. Well, in other by-elections, by a sliver, domestic nightmare news, London's ultra-low emission zone comes into effect today, Tuesday. A charging scheme that doesn't affect 90% of car owners in the new zone, doesn't affect the 46% of Londoners who don't own a car, and doesn't affect anybody who lives outside London at all, is now apparently a national cause celebre. What are you expecting from uh, exciting ULES launch week this week? Well, I was talking about about this with my neighbour yesterday because he's just had to scrap his van. He's a self-employed tradesman and he's got 7K in return for his van and he can replace it with a better one. I don't. He doesn't see the problem. I don't see the problem. But we were discussing how actually we're expecting a little bit less traffic on the roads this week, which is an interesting one. There will be a, a bit of adjustment. One thing that I saw, I think everybody in London is fully aware of what's going on. So if you live here, you're so aware of the politics around it. If you own one of these cars or vans that needs to be scrapped, you're already in the scheme. You've been written to, you know what's going on. I do think there will be people who live outside London who regularly drive in who will be hit by it. And that's a decision that has been taken for maximum anger by Tory opposition councils in surrounding boroughs to Greater London, where they just aren't putting up any signs or warnings or, or telling anyone what they're going to face. So there's going to be accidental fines for people who genuinely didn't know that they were going to be hit by this. And that's a deliberate decision by Tories to stoke up some rage about it in those surrounding areas. And that's why it's spreading out and out and out and becoming a kind of national issue. Really strange. The other thing that I think is really interesting is the way both Labour and the Tories are doing everything they can to avoid taking any ownership of this, despite it clearly being absolutely the right policy. Yeah, and a bipartisan policy as well until yes, the yes. Uxbridge by This is the point. So the only person taking any personal responsibility is Sadiq Khan. Obviously, he's very proud of it and he is happy to pin it to his name. Good for him. If you look at everybody else, the infighting that's going on... So. In Carshorton and Wallington, an area in South London, which is within the ULES zone, the Labour Party there are now blaming Grant Shapps and his TfL agreements, where funding through TfL was linked to agreement to ULES expansion for everything. Even though Sadiq Khan, their Labour compatriot, is happily standing up and saying this is our policy. They are backing away from it as quickly as they can. The Tories are branding it a Labour expansion. They're feeling very pleased to see Sadiq overseeing it because it gives them a figurehead they can pin it on. It's so depressing that despite this being the right thing to do, and as you say, a bipartisan agreement until it became politicised, it's now stirring up this, we're representing the motorist stick, which is just so retrograde. It's it's worrying and upsetting, I think. I particularly enjoyed 
the male's non-story at the weekend, which is Sadiq Khan's car is exempt from the uh, from the ULES okay. charge. Uh, and <laughs> like, this stoked up all the idiots ranting and raving about how he's got special treatments. And also this myth that you'll be exempt from the ULES charge if you're travelling to a mosque, which tells you absolutely <laughs> everything you need to know about that the does. grounds against it. But of course, his, his car isn't exempt. It's compliant. It complies with the policy, like 90% of cars in London. Exactly. Well, listeners, so does mine, and it's 17 years old. So, <laughs> Disgusting podcaster is exempt. How did, she swing, <laughs> how did she swing that one? A couple more points on politics for this week. Uh, Labour at the weekend ruled out any wealth taxes if they win the election. Rachel Reeves told the Sunday Telegraph that the party won't bring in a mansion tax on high-value properties or increase capital gains taxes or raise the top rate of income tax from 45p. Uh, obviously, this is the Sunday Telegraph, so it's a particular audience. Is this a wise move? This I'm really torn on this one, to be honest. I don't think it's the gotcha that it's being made out to be because it's not actually a policy but the absence of one. So Labour are in this strange space at the moment where they're talking a lot about what they're not going to do because they don't want to scare people but you know they're starting to leave it a bit late to make any promises and indeed what is there left to promise on because they're backing away from so many areas so I'm a bit concerned about that but also Blair and Mandelson have been here before them this kind of not too worried about the rich thing it is actually possible to find ways to you know raise taxes and 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 earn money in, in a non-regressive way that doesn't hit the poorest hardest without actually doing something that's kind of very symbolic, like a mansion tax, say. Now, that said, I'm perfectly comfortable with a mansion tax and would like to see one. But I, I do understand there are reasons not to scare the FT and the mail and so on when you're still quite a long way out from that landslide victory. Don't say landslide victory, don't jinx it. The Labour Party are now more trusted on the economy than the government. And voters who voted Tory in 2019 are now thinking about Labour and considering voting for Labour are especially annoyed at Sunak's optimism on inflation. They think uh, in, in recent party polling, those voters think that Sunak is trying to claim credit for something that would have happened anyway. And we've talked a lot about this on the podcast before. How hard can Labour push their superior appearance of competence on the economy? Is this something that could become the main narrative as we run into the election? Well, uh, the Tories always usually do that. So why not play them at their own game? I think that's perfectly sensible. Also, voters are absolutely right to to question the competence of the current government on the economy. The only issue for, for Labour on choosing this line is that, you know, it's a bit awkward not mentioning Brexit within that. And yet they're clear on their, their position on Brexit, that it's immovable for now, at least. So, they can't really go to town on that, which is the pri- one of the primary causes of the situation we're in, obviously. I think they're sensible to really talk about the economy because it's the one thing that everybody's feeling, absolutely everybody universally uh, in the country is, is struggling with some element of the economic climate currently. And after so many years in government, it is incompetent. Well, uh, if you're interested in Labour's position on Brexit and how to move it on Oh God, What Now Tomorrow, we have special guest Stella Creasy MP coming in to discuss exactly that issue, how to gently cajole the Labour Party to a more pro-European and possibly even at some point rejoining position. So that should be pretty interesting.
Meanwhile, with very little foothold on the economy, the Conservatives are continuing to push what they think are the hot-button issues of immigration and law and order. Suella Braverman reiterated her attacks on the politicised European Court of Human Rights over the weekend and said that while it's not government policy to leave, my views are clear. Is there any sign, Hannah, that this kind of extremely belligerent position on immigration and trying to make small boats the centrepiece of politics at the moment, is there any sign that it's working for the Conservatives? It's true that committed Conservative voters are angry about small votes and do care about immigration as a primary election issue. So they're right to talk about it as an issue that matters to their core people that they don't want to lose. But to talk about it so much when you're doing so badly and when the numbers in terms of the arrivals are going up and up and up and the attempts to create some kind of order out of the management process when arrivals get here is in such a mess seems bizarre to me. Obviously, they haven't got, you know, numbers of areas that they're doing brilliantly in that they can move on to discuss instead. (laughs) So that's probably part of the issue. But the strategy they've chosen is to focus on this. And really, it is an open goal for everybody who is rightly, deeply morally concerned about attitudes and behaviours and policies on this. So it just gives people like myself and, you know, other campaigners in the Labour Party, campaigners in other opposition parties, journalists, the space to talk about the abhorrent things that are going on in this country. And I think and I hope there are enough people who still feel shocked about what we're seeing in terms of the treatment of arrivals on small boats, that it can't possibly be a sensible political strategy. What's the thinking behind ankle tags for migrants? Will it ever happen or is it just, you know, this uh, today's headline? I don't think it will ever happen because despite Braverman's obsession with trying to leave the European Court of Human Rights, even if we did that, even if we stepped away from the kind of um, treaties and shared commitments that European countries have and set up individually, we are still a country that has some basic values and a a legal system that protects them. And I think walking away from those values is is not as easy as she would like. Thank goodness. What's the thinking behind it? Well, it's all about making sure that you know where everyone is. It's a classic sort of attempt to them and us migrants. You know, they're different to us. They don't have the rights we have. Those those kind of... um, arguments and rhetoric that I find so abhorrent. So I don't think it will ever happen. So I don't think people should get too worried about being a nation that will actually introduce a policy like that. But we should be concerned that we have a Home Secretary that is very happy to talk about this and see it as a as a potentially good approach when clearly it's repellent. Bravo's also had a run-in with police leaders after instructing them to investigate every crime, no matter how small. The National Police Chiefs Council says she's interfering with their independence. I mean, again, is is this real policy or is it just another headline in the Express? It seems that she doesn't really understand what her job is. <laughs> she doesn't get to tell the police how to do their job. She can set political priorities around how to spend on crime, the kind of focus and structure of how our policing is set up, but she certainly can't tell police how to actually do the job of crime fighting. I think this is actually a more serious accusation than some of the reporting has suggested. You know, police chiefs saying that you've got a politician directly interfering in their work is a huge issue. 
She says there's no such thing as a minor crime. Okay, fine. But <laughs> she's not the one having to deal with the allocation of resources. So yes, there is such thing as a minor crime when you've only got so much money. A few more things to watch out for coming up this week. On Thursday, it's the deadline for refugees from Afghanistan to leave their temporary accommodation in the UK and also for the government to clear all its applications under the Afghan Relocations and Assistance Policy. It's highly unlikely that either of these deadlines will be met. Are we going to be seeing headlines of uh, Britain's shame over Afghanistan towards the end of the week? Well, that's what we should see. I fear what we're going to see is some headlines around how Tories are allowing Afghan refugees to stay in luxury hotels when it couldn't be further from the truth. It's right that we had a deadline for refugees to be leaving that temporary accommodation and get moved and for government to clear those allocations. What happened when we took the, you know, the large number of refugees that we rightly supported because, we, you know, they, these were people who'd worked for and supported the, the British while in Afghanistan. We're protecting them from terrible fate in Taliban-led Afghanistan. What happened was that because of Ukraine, which wasn't expected, the Home Office got completely overwhelmed and put almost all of its efforts for political as well as humanitarian reasons into the uh, Ukraine response, leaving Afghan refugees completely languishing in hotels. Uh, hotels are not good for them. But the way the way it's written up, you'd think that they were staying in the bloody Ritz or something. It's shocking the state of life in those hotels. They're like prisons, but worse because they have absolutely no rights or control over their lives in those those places. I've written about it. I've spoken to uh, people living in those hotels. There are all kinds of social and cultural issues um, in the way they're managed. It's an awful situation. And the reason it's gone on so long is that there's local authorities just do not have enough options. They don't have enough homes to put them in. And the Home Office has showed absolutely no interest in their welfare or needs until now, and we're getting close to this deadline. Um, they've made no effort to include things like homestays, like we've seen the, for the Ukraine refugees. It was so badly mismanaged, and now we're seeing the result of that. And it's, it's a dreadful situation that's really affected the mental health of a lot of those uh, incoming families. A couple more things to watch out for. You may have noticed it at your own workplace. We certainly have at Podmasters. More covid Hospital admissions have risen in recent weeks. Uh, the effectiveness of vaccines is declining. And there is a new variant out there, EG5, also known as Eris, the Greek goddess of strife and discord. Uh, meanwhile, we've just been told that COVID boosters will not be offered to the nearly 12 million Britons who would be eligible for it this winter. Hannah, is there a new COVID mini wave on the way? I think so. Certainly, I also know quite a few people who've had it recently. In the US, there has been a rapid rise in hospitalizations with this new variant, and it's starting to be seen in the UK as well in the hotspots, so cities, London, Manchester, and so on. And then, of course, we've got back to school coming in a couple of weeks, week and a half. So I think there are reasons to be concerned and think about how we respond. As in every week for the past five years, there's lots going on in Trump world. A date has finally been set for Donald Trump's federal trial for attempting to overturn the presidential election. That's the federal trial, not one of the many others. The trial is going to be on March the 4th, which is the day before the Super Tuesday primary vote. Can we expect anything specific this week, Hannah, apart from just more crazy? More crazy is about right, isn't it? I think the own, I think this does help his case to be the GOP candidate and president again, sadly. There was a brilliant essay this weekend by Naomi Klein, who obviously often gets confused for... Naomi Wolf, who's turned into a mad conspiracy theorist, about how we're all living in this. It's about their, their how they get com 
confused with each other. And her essay is really about how we're living in these sort of new reality now where, where we're completely divided on whether we believe basic facts. And this is his situation, Trump's, the date for, is for next year, as you say, how this plays out is exact example of that. You either think he's the worst thing that's happened to democracy or you think he's the best thing since sliced bread. There's no way through it. The only thing that can hold him back, I think now, is sort of Trump fatigue because he's older news. So that's, uh, I, I don't hold much hope for that either, I'm afraid. In the ever-evolving mess that is the Spanish football story, Luis Rubiola's mother has gone on hunger strike inside a church to stop the inhumane witch hunt against her son. Angeles Bejar has locked herself inside the Divina Pastora Church in Motril. Hannah, how's this one going to play out? He's been called to resign by his own federation, which to me begs the question, why don't they sack him? Hmm. Is it legal fears? I mean, prosecutors are already investigating sexual assault, so legally they must definitely be covered. I think anyone in a normal job can lose that job if they're accused of sexual assault in the workplace, right? Whatever the result of that investigation. So I think, why not get rid of him? Why, why are we calling on him to resign? He's got to go. He will go. But how long this drags on is up to him, really, isn't it? Finally, the kids' TV channel, CITV, is closing after 40 years. It started as a segment on ITV in 1983 and became its own channel in 2006. Famous for Art Attack, My Parents Are Aliens, Ministry of Mayhem. I've never seen any of these shows. Is this a tragedy for parents? Not for parents. Cause, uh, it's not. It's the worst of the channels now. There's so much available on Netflix and Disney Plus and, and you know, iPlayer. I don't think, I, I don't know anyone who relies on CITV anymore. However, it's a sad, nostalgic thing. I think anyone who remembers the heyday in the late 80s and 90s of CITV will know that you're generally either a BBC house or a CITV house, but we were generally BBC, but CITV did have Children's Ward and most importantly, Nightmare. <laughs> so everybody watched Nightmare. If you don't know what Nightmare is, I think you should go and have a look, Andrew. It's basically the first attempt at video games, virtual reality, basically. It's like terrible graphic virtual reality game show. It's brilliant. Sounds absolutely incredible. I'm going to cancel my entire schedule for that. CITV has been replaced by a streaming service called ITVX Kids. So, I mean, it's, it's not like this stuff's going to disappear, but anything with X and kids in the title in close proximity is a bit weird, isn't it? I think it tells me that the people who are designing this are not 26-year-olds who really genuinely have a great some great ideas about what kids want now. It's people who think that the word the letter X is really cool, like Twitter now being called X. Yeah. And it's yeah, that's a bit sad, isn't it? Yeah. The the Elon Musk Kids channel. I don't think anybody's gonna to want to watch that. <laughs> well anyway, that's start your week. It's a short week, but there's a lot gonna be happening in it. Thanks, Hannah, for joining us. Thank you. So that's it, listeners. Summer is over. Politics is about to start up again for real. And we will be here every day with the Bunker Daily to guide you through it. Remember, you can get every episode a day early and without ads when you back us on Patreon. You get your own special RSS link so you can play the podcast ad-free through any app. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out more. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. Start Your Week from The Bunker was written and presented by Hannah Fern and Podmasters Group Editor Andrew Harrison. The producer was Kasia Tomashevich and the audio producer was me, Jade Bailey. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis. 
with artwork by James Parrott and music by Kenny Dickinson, Start Your Week from the Bunker is a Podmasters production.